I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line into a public space about a mile and a half long on the west side of New York City. Robert co-founded Friends of the High Line with Joshua David, whom he met at a community board meeting to protest the High Line's demolition in 1999. The park opened to the public in 2009. Robert and Josh are the authors of the book The High Line, the inside story of New York City's Park in the Sky. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What does the High Line look like? (laughs) Well, I mean, it was originally an old elevated rail line. So, you know, when I first saw it, it was sort of this rusting structure. But now we've cleaned it up a little bit, and there's a park on top. So you're about three stories in the air walking through the city, you know, sometimes through buildings, and it gives you just all these different perspectives on the city. Now, the High Line was first created in the 1930s as as a safety mechanism because uh, you had trains at street level who were killing people, basically running them over. And then they were abandoned by 1980s. Why were they abandoned? Because um, with the rise of interstate trucking, the, the line was used less and less. And, um, you know, its heyday was really you know, right after it was built, 30s, 40s. But by the 60s, it was used less and less. And the last train was a train load of frozen turkeys that ran at Thanksgiving around, right before Thanksgiving in 1980. So it wasn't that long ago that it was still, you know, an active train line. But, you know, and the trains ran, you know, you're saying people were killed. 10th Avenue was nicknamed Death Avenue because so many people were run over by the trains. And the railroad hired a guy on horseback to run in front of the trains, and he became nicknamed the West Side Cowboy. What other deliveries were made aside from uh, frozen turkeys to these buildings along the High Line? I mean, it was actually a lot of food. The nickname for the High Line was the Lifeline of New York because it brought in a lot of food to, to, to Manhattan. And a lot of the, the buildings that are still next to the High Line um, used to be windowless refrigerated warehouses. And now they're offices and residences and they punched windows through. Also the Nabisco factory, which is now Chelsea Market at 15th Street, you know, they were baking cookies. You know, the train would actually bring in the eggs and the flowers, and then the trains would take out the Oreos that would go all over the U.S. So in, in 1999, the city and developers and residents were planning to demolish the High Line, and you attended a community board meeting to help protest this, this demolition. What were you doing at that moment in your life? Um, I was working for... a a watch retailer and helping them launch an internet division, sort of right during the internet boom. So my background was in, you know, for-profit startups, a lot of internet companies. And I read an article in the Times that the Highline was going to be demolished and had a little map and it showed that it was a mile and a half long. And I'd seen parts of it, but I just thought it was all chopped up. And so that's when I thought, wow, this is, you know, a mile and a half in Manhattan. You know, that doesn't come around very often. You mentioned this was in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and this was the heyday of internet startups, which helped 20-somethings like yourself, you know, think that they could run these multi-million-dollar companies. How much was that in your psychology of wanting to think big for yourself? Oh, I, I think it was a huge part. The early 20-year-olds were taking companies public for hundreds of millions of dollars, so you know, I didn't. It didn't bother me that I didn't have any experience necessarily. 
But, you know, when we were starting it, I thought my role and, and Josh's role would just be to get it started, and then mm. someone else would do it. But pretty quickly we found out some people might have been excited, but they didn't want to take it on. You take a year off every 10 years. It just so happened that when you were thinking about starting this project for the Highline, it coincided with one of your years off. Can you describe how you decided ultimately to take that year to yeah, I mean, this? it's not a scientific uh, <laughs> process. It's just when I was in college, um, I met uh, met my boyfriend or my first boyfriend or the first guy I ever kissed, and we didn't, we were not out of the closet. And we didn't know what to do, so we dropped out of college um, and said, told our parents, didn't tell our parents why, but told our parents we were taking a year off, and we ended up moving to Hong Kong and doing construction work and traveling in Southeast Asia, worked on the stock exchange here. And just, it was a great year. I mean, it was an amazing year. It was so helpful. And I, I made, that's when I made the promise to myself that I would try every 10 years or so, you know, to take some time off for myself. And then, uh, you know, so it was really sort of a, a, I think, a coincidence there. When I started, I was 29. And that watch retailer um, later in the year got bought out by Sunglass Hut. So I made a little bit of money and had enough money to take a year off. And I thought I would travel and figure out what I wanted to do next. But ended up staying in New York and focusing mostly on the High Line and was really enjoying it. But I still, I still thought, oh, this is just something I'll do, you know, just during this year off. And to what extent was your opposition to wanting to take this on initially, the fact that you'd be running a nonprofit or, you know, socially minded organization versus a for-profit organization? I mean, I definitely had never had any desire to run a nonprofit. You know, I'd never had any desire to go to a community board meeting before I went to that one. So, you know, that was part of it. I just didn't also think uh, running a nonprofit could be that interesting. And that was a huge mistake. Right. And it's actually very similar to startups. Because, you know, when you're in a startup, half of, uh, more than half of your time is consumed by raising money. And that's the same thing in nonprofit. The problem is, you know, in a for-profit, either you stop making money and you go under. Nonprofit, the more successful you are, the more money you have to raise. It's just... <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, the co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the creation of the High Line, an elevated public park in New York City. You went to Princeton, and you weren't openly gay until mid-college. What was that like for you growing up in Texas, knowing that you were gay? Or did you not know at the time? I don't know. I mean, I definitely knew, but I didn't really think about it that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was really fortunate to come out at a time when I did, because it was a very uh, much easier, you know, in the early 90s to come out than mm-hmm. I think even, you know, five years before. My parents were very supportive. My family was really supportive, and my friends were really supportive. So it really wasn't. And then I moved to New York where it's it's pretty easy. Your parents uh, were involved in civic-minded projects uh, when you were growing up in San Antonio. For instance, uh, your father helped to found Friends of the Parks in San Antonio. Is it accidental that you came to this place or how did that inform what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I always thought the Highline uh, reminded me of my mother because my mother was always interested in odd projects and sort of taught me from a young age to see, sort of find beauty in odd places. And then it was, I don't know, maybe like three or four, it might might have been five years after I'd been working on the Highline that I realized that the things that my dad, when I was growing up, the things my dad did outside of work were he was involved in preservation, parks, and architecture. (laughs) And, you know, here I was working on a project that combined all three of those things. You know, so I think I was sort of slow to see, and he was kind enough not to point it out. (laughs) 
which implies a, a, a healthy relationship with, with your parents. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I, I think I have a very, a, I had an atypical Texan childhood. I, I became obsessed with Russia when I was in middle school after reading Nicholas and Alexandra. And um, my parents let me go to Russia when I was in middle school by myself. And then they let me live over there for three years in high school in 87, which, you know, wasn't wasn't what most Texan parents, you know, wanted their <laughs> kid to go live in the Soviet Union at the time. What do your siblings do? You have, t- you have a brother and a sister. Yeah, my, uh, my brother is an Episcopal priest in Fredericksburg, and, with, and he lives there with his wife and two kids. In and, Texas. In Texas, yeah. And my sister uh, lives in um, Dallas, and she has four kids. You mentioned that when you were doing the project, it seemed obvious to, to you that you were paralleling your mom's eccentric life to some degree. Your mom, for instance, kept bees in your living room in, in Texas, and she was also a, a, a kite maker and collector. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, the year I was born, she heard about the National Kite Flying Championship that happens on the mall. The Smithsonian hosts it every year. She'd never really done anything before, but the rule was you had to make your own kite and fly it yourself. So she made a kite and went to uh, Washington, and, and she won the National Kite Flying Championship. <laughs> and, uh, and then went on to collect, I think she one time she had the largest collection of kites in the United States. She had several shows, made some making her own kites. And, and then, you know, she would every few years she would get a new hobby from collecting brooms to animal vertebras to, you know. Whistles. I, whistles. She doesn't whistle. Cl- I mean, you could probably name a top collection, <laughs> a the downstairs bathroom, the, bu- the, the, the bathroom, the bathtub is filled with all different ki- devices that make bubbles. I read a quote. Uh, she said, a kite and a person have many similarities. They both have skin and bones and rely on the same thing to get them going, air. <laughs> yeah. When she said when I was, she loved the name Highline because high of kite flying. And, and she, there's, I don't know if it was her quote or someone else's, but she always used to say, it's hard to have bad thoughts when you're looking up. That like when you look down, one, you're usually not as happy, but it also makes you more unhappy. When you look up, you're just sort of already either happier or it makes you a little happier. And that's something, you know, it's connected to the Highline. I want to go back to 1999 when you heard about this potential demolition of the High Line. You went to this community board meeting just as a concerned citizen in the West Village, and you happened to be sitting next to this guy, Joshua David, who became your, your partner. Did you both come up with the idea, you know, let's start this, or was it more of a eventual process? It was more like, oh, you know, here's my business card. Oh, here's, you know, we exchanged business cards. And I said, well, I'm really busy. Why don't you do something? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'll help. And he was like, well, I'm busier. You do it and I'll help, you know. Mm -hmm. So we were like, okay, well, let's talk. David is a writer. And at the time, he was writing for magazines ranging from... Yeah, uh, Travel and Leisure, Gourmet, Wallpaper. Were you at all in any way strange bedfellows? Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons it worked is we are so different. His background was in writing and magazines. Mine was in startups. I think that's one of the things that has made it work, is Mm. that we were precisely so different and that neither of us had any experience in planning architecture, uh, you know, that most people assume we were architects. At what point did you say, you know what, we don't have a background in this. Let's come up with this competition. From the beginning, we always said, let's... We're not, he and I are not going to decide this. And that, that's why it was great that we weren't architects. I think if we had been architects, it would have been irresistible for us to want to design it. 
Who were the architects for the project? So it was led by James Corner Field Operations, who's a landscape architect. And he partnered with James Diller Scafidio and Renfro Architects. And also Pete Uldoff, who is the garden designer who picked a lot of the plants. They became the designers of the project uh, as a result of a competition that you held. And some some other ideas in the competition ranged from a mile-long swimming pool to a roller coaster. What other ideas were there? (laughs) There was one idea where it was called a park prison. (laughs) And the idea was sort of a political manifesto is that we should have to see the people that we imprison. So you'd have Mm -hmm. a park on the High Line, and in in the I-beams in the middle, you would imprison people. So as you're having your leisure stroll, you'd also have to see people in prison. I mean, my favorite was the pool. This, mm-hmm. It was such a clean idea, this mile-long lap pool. And imagine, you know, swimming, you know, no lap turns. And then in the winter, it would become a, you know, a mile-and-a-half skating rink. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line. We'll hear more from Robert coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line into a public space about a mile and a half long on Manhattan's west side in New York City. Friends of the High Line relies on support from members to fund the ongoing maintenance of the park, as well as the expansion of its third section to be completed in 2014. The design for the High Line was determined through this competition that you held. In what way was opening this up to the public strategic? There was one of our early supporters, a guy, Phil Ahrens, and he said, you know, don't show people designs. And it was one of the best um, pieces of advice. And I always, whenever I'm talking to people that are starting their own projects, everyone wants to rush to do, get into the design and show what it's going to look like. And, you know, I think there was a real advantage not to because people could then imagine things that they want to see up there. And that's when we had this um, photographer, Joel Sternfeld, go up and shoot the High Line. And Josh and I think of him as almost sort of the the, co- the, the third co-founder because he, he took these photos that sold the project for us. You know, you could look at it and say, well, well you know, it's just an abandoned railroad with weeds growing on it. But, you know, it's weeds growing on an abandoned rail track with the Empire State Building in the background. So this is Manhattan. And so, you know, people looked at that and saw all different things. Some people saw a chance to build something. Some people saw a chance for gardens. Some people saw perennials. Some people saw the wild grasses. Some people saw preservation. Some people thought trains. You know, it enabled us to really create a broad group of support, not just sort of a narrow, you know, just architects or just preservationists. So the lack of specificity really helped to facilitate this current of interest. Yeah. But what the, the beauty of it is then it all came back, actually, ironically, to that very photo. When people when we asked people in the community, what did they want? They pointed to Joel's photo. And the, the beauty of what the design team did was they didn't just make make it look exactly like that. They captured the spirit and the feeling of what was up there, but also added something new. Ironically, the opposition to the project was almost helpful to you. Yeah. Can you describe that that paradox? Yeah. Well, at first, when we came on board, you know, we really didn't know who we were up against. But then it became pretty clear that the city, led by Mayor Giuliani, was against it. He signed a demolition order three days before he left office. 
the property owners in the neighborhood had been organizing to tear it down for years. And actually, a lot of people in the neighborhood, you know, just thought it was an eyesore. Even if they thought it would be nice if it was a park, they thought these two guys are never going to make it happen. So you should just get it over with and tear it down. But, you know, my elevator pitch was it's a mile and a half Manhattan. How often do you get a chance to think about that? I'd show them the Joel Sternfeld photo. If that didn't work, I could always say, and Giuliani hates it. And then people go, oh, really? Then it must be a great idea. I'd be happy to help. When did you become uh, more and more certain that actually, you know what, this is something that can happen despite the intransigence of this prior? Yeah, I mean, I think I was one of the last people to believe that it would really happen. I mean, I'm I'm a dreamer, but I'm also a realist and knew the chances from the beginning were very small. And then as we started making a lot of progress, we had just so many, it was so complex with so many legal, financial, regulatory, and political hurdles and just engineering problems that I was just convinced some, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have taken a lot for it all to fall apart. I mean, Josh and I, part of the, one thing that we're very much alike is we always sort of worrying and seeing the problems coming up. So... We had a development director one time who said she was the only organization she'd ever been at. When you got a million-dollar check, we just kept our heads down and kept typing on the computer and kept working. Mm-hmm. And it's still, it, it's now just still sinking in that this actually not only happened, but is actually working, you know, that people are liking it. You obviously faced just an abundance of opposition. What were some of the darkest, like, personal moments uh, for you? Like, did it ever get to a point where you just didn't like what you were doing? Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, for me, I like the process. The times I would get really upset and lose sleep, it was always interpersonal things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, you know, when Josh and I weren't getting along, you know, we've had our ups and downs. Most people, you know, assume... Um, that we're sort of best friends and it's and you know it's been really tough and there's been several points in the project where we didn't think we could keep working together and you know those were always in some ways the the hardest uh, time for me. In the early days uh, you took the stance of you were neighborhood nobodies you know which uh, well no I didn't take someone called us neighborhood nobodies it yeah wasn't. but you kind of ran with it uh, yeah. w- what's that quote uh, don't be so humble you're not that great yet yeah yeah um, no we definitely play the humble game I, we, we definitely play that game a little uh, bit yet yet uh, even though you played that game you you were quite professional and quite deliberate about certain things one of which was hiring lawyers versus asking lawyers to work pro bono for you. Well, I mean, one of the things I think most nonprofits or maybe anybody, you know, is loath to do is pay lawyers a lot of money. (laughs) But at the time, we needed to sue the city on a very specific rail use and land use issue. And the lawyers that could do it pro bono weren't the best in that area. And the lawyers that were the best are usually hired by the city or the railroad, and they didn't want to do it pro bono. So that's when we realized, you know, that's how developers get things done. They hire the really smart lawyers. And so we wanted to take a page from that book. The High Line wouldn't be standing today if it wasn't for those lawyers. Um, and we had to pay. We had to pay a lot of money. And that's in the early days, it wasn't that glamorous, but that's what we were raising money for was to pay these lawyers to stop the demolition. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line in New York City into a public space. I want to talk a little bit more about the opposition. 
Why was opposition to keeping the High Line so fierce? And what was one impediment that disappeared that kind of helped to open the floodgates? Well, the High Line was an was a the ra- a railroad CSX owned the High Line, but all they owned was the steel structure and a thirty foot easement above it. So there were twenty two property owners that owned property underneath it and air rights above it, and they thought it would eventually come down. So they just wanted to tear it down. So that's why there was such um, opposition and a lot of money involved because these developers, you know, had bought property hoping the High Line would come down so they could develop in that space. I mean, one of the developers said he's, uh, they spent over $3 million in legal fees fighting us. And then, you know, some people in the community, you know, to me, how romantic a train running through your neighborhood. The reality was not romantic. It was dirty. It was loud. It smelled. You didn't live on the wrong side of the tracks. You lived under the tracks. And in some cases, their buildings have been demolished because they were worth more for parking than as buildings. So it sort of put the neighborhood in a deep freeze, which for some people like me is interesting, but from an economic standpoint, you know, is not sustainable in a city like this. So a lot of people wanted to tear the highland down and get on with it. And that's where Amanda Burden, um, who is the planning chair for the Bloomberg administration, came in and did a rezoning that allowed uh, the property rights to be transferred within a district. It's what saved, um, you know, most people think it was it's Jackie O that saved Grand Central, which she did. But the legal mechanism was they allowed the railroad that owned Grand Central, ironically, to transfer their development rights anywhere in the neighborhood. Normally, you can only transfer it to your neighbor. It also saved the theaters uh, in Times Square in the 90s. You know, it's used very infrequently. But Amanda passed this very complicated rezoning that allowed these developers um, to actually make money off owning property under the High Line. And then that's what got them on board. Who were some of your unlikely supporters in, in the early days? Well, we have Florent, but I mean, that didn't surprise, you know, he, Florent had this restaurant on Gansevoort Street that really was one of the early pioneers in the meat market. And he put us in touch with Diane von Furstenberg, who had a store in the neighborhood. The designer married to Barry Diller, who runs Interactive Corporation. Yeah. And her and her son and Barry you know, really got behind the project and one of was one of our, our first really big, you know, financial supporters. Edward Norton was another one, um, the actor. He read an article that Adam Gopnik wrote about um, Joel's photos of the Highline that was in The New Yorker, and he read it and looked us up in information and called up Josh. And Josh was just sort of talking to him, and he said Edward Norton, and then halfway through he said, are you? And he said, yes, I'm Edward Norton, the actor. <laughs> <laughs> and so he said, oh, I really want to help. He mailed us a check right away, would show up at meetings, go to community board meetings. I mean, he actually really dug in. You also had a lot of support from the gay community in in the West Village. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, Josh and I are both gay. And, you know, I think we thought traditionally, you know, nonprofits were run by people on the Upper East Side that you see in the style section of the New York Times or, you know, just, just... famous rich people. And in the beginning, they weren't that interested in this project. So we tapped the people that we knew, which was our friends, which was a lot of gay people. I mean, one of my straight friends from college came to one of our first events, and he was like, wow, there are a lot of men here. You know, he, did, he didn't get it. it was all gay men except him. Um, 
Herbert Mushamp, who was the old architecture critic for the Times, has this great quote about the story of preservation in New York is the alliance of gay men and rich women, straight women. <laughs> Speaking of straight women, there was a woman, Betsy Barlow Rogers, uh, who founded the Central Park Conservancy. She was helpful to you. Well, I mean, one, it's great. She's from San Antonio, my hometown. She went to high school with my dad. What, what she did is she created a private group that partnered with the Parks Department and the city to turn around Central Park and then help run it. And so, you know, without that precedent, the Highline was so unlikely, I don't think we could have ever pioneered yet a new model. And same with Bryant, Dan Biederman at, at, at Bryant Park. And mm-hmm. we were lucky to have a willing partner. You know, Bloomberg was willing, even though we had never <laughs> done this before, was willing to see us as a credible partner. In addition to help from from Betsy, you also received help from a couple of classmates of yours from Princeton, one of whom was Gifford Miller. Yeah, so Gifford was um, actually my boyfriend's roommate in, in college. When I first called up Gifford, he was he was a city council person, I think one of the youngest city council person ever elected at the time. And he said, well, that's a really stupid idea. No, to you. Yeah. And he said, why don't you call Christine Quinn? She's a local city council. You know, he was basically pawning me off. And Christine was actually much more supportive. But then we got Gifford to go up there and Gifford really fell in love with it. And then another, uh, another one of my best friends from college, Mario Palumbo, became our treasurer. He helped get his boss on board, a guy named Phil Ahrens. And he was a developer. And he helped give us a lot of credibility because all the developers in the neighborhood and in the city thought it was a bad idea. So here was a really successful New York developer that was saying, this makes sense. Robert Caro, or Bob Caro, who's the author of Power Broker, a book about Robert Moses, he came up with you one day to look at the High Line. And that was sort of one of your personal high points in all this. How come? Well, I got a message on my machine, you know, from Bob Caro, and I was just over the moon, you know. And I, I took him and his wife up on a tour of, you know, when the Highline was still wild. And he was so excited about the project, and he was so complimentary to me. And that's when it really first started sinking in that, wow, I might be doing something really special. I read his book right when I moved to New York. It's such a great primer mm-hmm. on everything about New York. Mm -hmm. And there's a great section in The Power Broker where it talks about how Robert Moses um, builds uh, the West Side Improvement Project, which was part of the High Line. It cost $150 million in 1930, so equivalent to the big dig, you know, now. And he goes through several pages about how he got the money piece by piece by piece. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a real Robert Moses fan, but it was also just sort of inspiring to see you know, it doesn't come at once. You don't have to see how you're going to get the money. Mm-hmm. And so I always kept those um, pages, you know, by my, um, I'd Xeroxed them and they were, you know, by my desk. In that way, you're similar to Robert Moses. Um, but but Robert uh, Caro, who went up there, actually thought that your project was the inverse of yes. something Moses would do. Yeah, I mean, he, he liked the irony that it was helped created by a Robert Moses project, but that Robert Moses would probably would not have liked it, Why? you know, because it was a bottom-up project. You know, Robert Moses' project were the ultimate um, projects of top-down, you know, of, mm-hmm. of government authority pushing it through, you know, against community support, where this project really started in the community and then sort of bubbled up. You raised $150 million for phase one and two of, of the project. 
And this, by the way, the project was full steam ahead, really during an economic crisis uh, in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts about that? Did you ever feel, huh, you know, maybe this money could be used for schools? Or what was your psychology around that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we realized early on, and a guy um, who's also one of the people that's been really important to the project, a guy named John Alshuler, um, helped us do an economic feasibility study and to show how this would become an economic generator for the city. And, you know, that it wasn't, that it really made economic sense, that this was a good investment. And it's turned out to be, you know, true beyond our wildest dreams. You know, it's generated over $2 billion in development already. And we estimate it'll be about $900 million that'll be returned to the city in additional real estate taxes over 20 years. People have said about you that you are a superior marketer and that obviously, you know, that 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 helped. Yeah. You know, I think to me, one of the things that was important for me was the graphic identity and sort of graphics, um, which Paula Cher did our, our logo, you know, a few months after we started, and it's now the logo for the park. And so in a very, in very early stage, we put a real emphasis on the graphics, and it was two, two, twofold. One, to make people think it was we had more going on than we did and that they'd want to get involved, but it was also that it was a commitment that we were going to follow through on good design. And this is at a time when, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple uh, are, you know, gaining acceleration. You have the, the iPod. How much of that was was in your thoughts. I remember that I I remember those iPod we actually knocked off one of those early iPod <laughs> ads for one of our events. Um, but it was a commitment that we weren't just going to put up a planter and put up a stair and call it a day. You look a little bit I think like like Jimmy Stewart, you know, and and he he was uh, in this movie Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and I actually think of Rear Window yeah. when I'm walking on the High Line because it's about uh, just being up close with your neighbors. And you have people walking on the High Line and, you know, peeping in. Yeah. Uh, people are voyeurs like myself. And, you know, we like to see what's going on uh, in the residences around around you. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we really um, we loved about when we first heard the design team is in their first interview. One I love because they were arguing amongst themselves in their interview, which I liked. <laughs> but they also used the word, I think Liz Diller used it, was the word illicit. You felt like you were doing something, you know, not like hardcore illegal, but, you know, like riding your bike the wrong way on a street or something. And then, you know, right after we opened, our, the first big scandal was that the New York Post did a big story about... Um, you know, people standing on the High Line watching people have sex in the Standard Hotel, which is right above the High Line, which is a little bit... I mean, I look all the time and I never see it, but, um, you know, so it's become almost like an urban myth and you'll see tourists just planted, staring up, you know, waiting for something, <laughs> hoping something's going to happen in the hotel window. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also think... Usually when you go up in buildings in New York, you go to the Empire State Building, you know, you're at this high vantage point and people look like ants. The High Line, you're, you're just, you know, 30 feet above the street. So you can make eye contact with people on the street. It has this it, it's very different feeling and, and experiencing the city. It makes the city almost look quainter, not, not as majestic. By the way, what do you do as, as a hobby? <laughs> um, I'm a... I, I used to be more of a painter. I used to, I, I didn't study it, but I started sort of taking it up in the in the 90s. And uh, right before I started the High Line, I'd had a few very, very small shows. And, um, but lately I haven't, I haven't been painting that much. 
you meditate daily. What kind of meditation do you do and what does it do for you? It's just a mantra-based meditation. It's um, So I, I learned to meditate you know, several years ago. And it's just, uh, I do it 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And I always hit, I think like most people, this sort of a low or this wall, you know, I don't know, some glucose shortfall, you know, around three or four. And so I originally would go back, we had an old um, storage closet and I would go back there to meditate. And gradually more and more people at the office have learned and now there's almost 10 of us. And a lot of us, you know, every day at around four, sometimes six, we'll go back in the storage closet and and meditate together. Well, thank you very much for joining us. My guest has been Robert Hammond, co-founder of The Highline. Coming up, we'll meet Emily Weiss, founder of Glossier. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.